Did we do Flaming Pigs last week? Was that last week? Just checking. So anyway, we finished Isaiah 24, and 24 through 27 or so is talking about end times all the way to, I think, new heaven and new earth. So let's back up and pick it up at Isaiah 24, 21, and then we'll get a run into 25. So on that day, the Lord will punish the host in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. So obviously the time being referred to here is the time when the rebellion in heaven is going to have been put down. Same thing with the rebellion on earth. They will gather together as prisoners in a pit and will be shut up in a prison and after many days they will be punished. The moon will be confounded, the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. And again, that sounds very much like Revelation, where you have the elders around the throne casting down their crowns. This is all Revelation talk as far as I'm concerned. So chapter 25, O Lord, you are my God, I will exalt you, I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things, Plans formed of old and sure. We've talked about that in other contexts. Specifically, Ephesians talks about mysteries hidden from the creation of the earth. And the context there is that if the powers and principalities in heaven had realized what the consequences of crucifying the Messiah were going to be, which is to say the Gentiles were going to come in, then they never would have done it. And the fact that that was going to happen was a mystery that was hidden not only from us on earth, but from the heavenly principalities and powers also. So the idea here that God has got plans that are set up to be revealed at the appropriate time shows up in a number of places in Scripture. Verse 2, For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. And this is in the context of God destroying the wicked of the earth, and the only ones left are the righteous. Verse 3, therefore strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall. And the metaphor there, breath of the ruthless obviously is like a roaring lion or bluster or that kind of thing. It is of no more use than wind beating against a wall. The obvious assumption is you're inside the building and the wind is beating against the wall and it doesn't do any damage. So it's talking about futility. So verse 4 again. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. These are all desert metaphors. So subduing the noise of the foreigners as heat is subdued by the shade of a cloud. 
when you're in the desert and a cloud goes over and you're standing in the shade, the temperature drops. And what's saying here is God is subduing the noise of the foreigners, and from that you can infer threats that are coming against the people of Israel, and he subdues those in the same way a cloud on a hot day in the desert cools everything down. It's all just poetry at this point. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. This, I believe, is the supper of the Lamb. Verse 7, And he will swallow up on his mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. This idea of death casting a pall or a shadow over all peoples shows up in several places. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 2, and I will pick it up in verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Yeshua, likewise partook of the same things. He partook of the things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Death is the covering or the pall if you will, that is cast over all people. So while we are mortal, the fear of death is always present. And because of the fear of death, gives Satan the opportunity then to intimidate and make slaves of us. And what the Hebrews passage is saying is he destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So Yeshua destroyed the devil. Since that all happens outside of our time stream, I'm not sure where that is with respect to our time. But here in Isaiah, it is clearly in times when God himself will swallow up death forever. Back in Isaiah 25, verse 9. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And I am seeing that as Yeshua. Verse 10. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab will be trampled down in his place, as straw is trampled down on the dunghill. Moab does not fare well in Isaiah. This is sort of the second or third time Moab has been smitten. Verse 11. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it, as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. Remember, one of the things that has characterized Moab is pride. And so the idea of spreading out his hands as a swimmer spreads out his hands, the idea is he is trying to expand his territory. So the he will spread out his hand is Moab, not God. Verse 12, and the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low and cast to the ground to the dust. We're sort of in end times and what looks like the 
marriage feast of the lamb and all that kind of stuff and sort of give a backhand swipe to Moab at the end of the thought. Chapter 26. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. We have a strong city. He, God, sets up salvation as walls. In other words, God's salvation is the wall of the strong city. And when it says, open the gate and that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in, I am assuming that is reunited Israel. You could also read it as righteous among the Gentiles, but I don't think that's what that means. I think it means Israel being gathered in. And of course, we know from Revelation that when the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven, that Israel is going to be inside and the nations are going to be outside. And Israel is going to fulfill the function in the new heaven and the new earth that the Levites would have served in the camp in the wilderness. I am assuming that's what that means. Verse 3. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. For he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low, lays it low to the ground, casts it to the dust. The foot tramples it, the feet of the poor, the steps of the needy. Not sure what this is, but I'm expecting that it's like we just took a side swipe at Moab. This is probably something to do with the nations. And in verse 6, the foot tramples it, the feet of the poor, the steps of the needy. That has a couple of symbolic connotations. A proud city would sort of, by definition, not look after the needs of the poor and the needy. So when that city is brought low, it is brought to a point where the poor and the needy are exalted over the ruins of the city. So the idea there is that those who were unjustly treated while it was a strong city are now in a position to walk over it. And the metaphor there, if you remember the book of Joshua, when Joshua took out the southern kings, what he did is he brought them out of the cave and he had his commanders come and put their feet on the necks of the captive kings. So it's a humiliation thing, if you will. So all of that speaks of pride being brought down and humiliated. And those who were unjustly treated by pride being exalted. Verse 7. The path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of the righteous. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. Let me stop there for a moment. The idea of us waiting in the paths of righteousness, and I'm assuming Israel here, but it may be the righteous Gentiles too. I'm not casting aspersions on righteous Gentiles. But the idea that they are walking in a path of righteousness and they are awaiting the arrival of God indicates that 
we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, and when you come back, you will find us so doing. And you can take that to several of Yeshua's parables, where Yeshua says, all right, I'm going to leave my servants in charge of my house, and I'm going to come back at a time that you will not expect. And what I expect to do is find you, back to Isaiah, standing in the paths of righteousness. That's not what Yeshua says, but it's the idea. I expect you to be doing the stuff I gave you to be doing when I get back. And if I do find you doing the stuff that I expect you to be doing, you will be greatly rewarded. If, however, I find you carousing, drinking, and beating your fellow servants, I'm going to be grumpy. And that's when we cast into outer darkness and we have wailing and gnashing of teeth and all that kind of stuff. So the idea here is people doing what God would have them do, waiting in the paths of righteousness and waiting for God to return. We will do it and then we will understand. The idea then is if you are walking in the paths of righteousness, which is to say you are walking with God and you are doing as best you understand what he would have you do and what his Torah says to do, as you do that, you will come to an understanding of what his mind is like and you will then be able to do the things that he would expect you to do without having to worry about it very much. Let me read verse 9 again. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. So the idea here is when you walk in God's statutes and judgments, you will learn righteousness in that process. Verse 10, if favor is shown to the wicked, he does not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he deals corruptly. He does not see the majesty of the Lord. So those who are wicked will not see the righteousness of God. They will not come to understand the mind and the heart of God because they're not walking in the way he said to walk. Verse 11, O Lord, your hand is lifted up but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire of your adversaries consume them. So we're talking about Israel, if you will, before the end times. Everybody see the time shift back and forth that's going on here? You got stuff that's clearly end times, and now you've got stuff that's fairly contemporary. And this is poetic, so you sort of need to pay attention. Verse 12. O Lord, you will ordain peace for us. You have done for us all your works. O Lord our God, other lords besides you have ruled over us, but your name alone we bring to remembrance. And I am assuming that's talking about Israel in exile. I don't think that it's necessarily foreign God, although it could be. Because remember, one of the things that I believe Moses says in Deuteronomy is if you cease to walk in my ways, you're going to get sent into exile. And if you go after other gods, I'm going to send you to other gods and you get to live under them for a while. That may be what this is talking about. But the idea here is even in exile, Jehovah is the one that Israel brings to remembrance. Verse 14, they are dead. They will not live. They are shades. They will not arise. To that end, you have visited them with destruction and wiped out all remembrance of them. Not quite sure what we're talking about here. Could be the kings of the earth. Because remember back in 20, 
4, he was talking about punishing the angels in heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. So that may be what we're talking about, or he could also be talking about the spiritual authorities over the earth. Book of Daniel, where you have the prince of Persia and so forth, could be talking about either one. I don't know. But anyway, they are dead. They will not arise. They are shades. They will not arise. Shades is poetic. People who are dead. The spirits of the dead, if you will. In classical literature are called shades. The shades are those who have died physically, but continue to exist in some sort of a afterlife. Ghosts would be a more modern term. Except we think of ghosts as being active in the world. I mean, that's sort of the connotation you get when you talk about ghosts. Shades are not. For example, when Saul goes and consults the witch of Endor, and the witch of Endor calls up Samuel, and Samuel says, you know, who's awakened me? In classical literature, Samuel, under those circumstances, would be a shade. He has consciousness, he's able to answer questions, but he's not physical anymore, so he has no more ability to influence things on the earth. Let's go to 14. They are dead, they will not live, they are shades, they will not arise. To that end you have visited them with destruction and wiped out all remembrance of them. As I said earlier, this could be either the kings of the earth who have oppressed Israel, or it could be the spiritual forces behind the kings of the earth that God has dealt with. Because remember back in 23, he says he's going to deal with the spirits in heaven, he's going to deal with the kings on the earth. So it could be either one, don't know. Verse 15, but you have increased the nation, O Lord, you have increased the nation. You are glorified, you have enlarged all the borders of the land. I'm thinking that's talking about Israel, because remember when we read Ezekiel, the actual borders of Israel extend from Sinai all the way up to the Euphrates River. So could very well be talking about that. Verse 16, O Lord, in distress they sought you. They poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them, like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth. So were we because of you, O Lord. We were pregnant, we writhe, but we have given birth to wind. You have accomplished no deliverance on the earth, and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. So he's talking about Israel in exile, and them crying out under the discipline of God. But unlike a pregnant woman whose pain produces a child, and so is a source of joy ultimately, this has not produced a child, and so it is not a source of joy because they, at this point, have not yet been redeemed. One of the things that happens through all three of the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, is God tells Israel, you're going to exile and you deserve it. However, at the end of that, I will bring you back and I will judge the nations among whom you were in exile. And the basis of the judgment as I understand it is even though the nations who took you into exile were my instrument, they, in fact, engaged in unnecessary roughness. Instead of just doing my will, getting you into exile, and holding you there until you straightened out, they 
enjoyed the process too much and wrought far more death, destruction, and pain than was necessary to do what I would have had them done. So I will judge them. What this passage in Isaiah seems to say is, all right, we're in exile. You put us there. You did it to discipline us. We understand that. In exile, we have been writhing like a woman in pain, but we aren't delivering anything. And furthermore, we are still in exile, and you haven't taken care of the nations like you said you were going to do. And that, from my perspective, is a timing thing. Your word says over and over again that you're going to take care of these folks. That hasn't happened yet. I don't get the sense that they doubt that it's going to happen. It's just that right now they're in pain, they're in futility, and the promises of God have not yet fully come to pass. However, they also recognize that exile is part of the promises of God because that goes back to Leviticus and Deuteronomy where God says, if you fall away from me, I'm going to send you into exile. So it's not the case that the promises of God have failed. They have not. It's just that as we go through that process, we are nowhere near the end, and that's making us grumpy. Understand two things. Thing one is God says to Israel, clear back in Deuteronomy, you are my people. Best, you be my people in blessing because you're walking in the way that I would have you walk, and you are an example to the nations, and the nations can look at you and say, what a wise and gracious God this people has, and how wise they are to have followed him. However, if you're not behaving in a way that's befitting my blessing, you're going to be my example in exile because the nations are going to say, wow, that is a just God. He did just exactly what he said he was going to do. So either in blessing or in exile, you are still my people and you're still going to be a witness to the world. So the witness that Israel is works just fine in exile. It's just not very pleasant. And that goes back to the mystery in Ephesians 3. And the mystery in Ephesians 3 and 1 Corinthians 3 or 4 is that there was a mystery that God had hidden from the principalities and powers in heaven. And if they had realized that the crucifixion of the Messiah was going to result in the Gentiles coming into the kingdom of God, they would never would have done it. The other part of that is from Israel's perspective, they are not expecting salvation to be to the Gentiles, they are expecting the kingdom of God to come and God's blessing to flow over the entire earth, but they don't particularly regard their mission as converting Gentiles. They're to be an example. And the fact that the Gentiles become fellow heirs with Israel is a surprise to Israel, it's a surprise to the Gentiles, and it's a surprise to the powers and principalities of heaven. Everybody's surprised when that happens. There's obviously a time shift. I'm not sure where that time shift goes. It could be the current exile. The current exile is the Roman exile. It could be the Babylonian exile. It could be the Assyrian. I just don't know. But there's clearly a time shift. And I'm not asserting that it is any particular time shift. I'm simply saying that there is a time shift. Let's finish the chapter and we'll quit. So verse 19. Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light and the earth will give birth to the dead. So now we're talking about resurrection. As I say, this is all poetic, and it shifts in time. And remember, Isaiah is writing from 120-some-odd years before the Babylonian exile, and even before and during the Assyrian exile. And he goes 
all over the place in the time stream. And so this is obviously talking about resurrection. Verse 20, Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will disclose the blood shed on it and will no more cover its slain. A couple of things about this passage. Rapture mavens point at this as talking about the rapture. I don't see it that way, but I'm just telling you, if you listen to somebody who believes in the rapture, this is one of the things that they will use as a text. I see it as greater exodus. Greater exodus is in Jeremiah 16. What God says is there will be an exodus of such a magnitude that the previous exodus will be forgotten. And my favorite example, if I were to tell you to remember the World Trade Center bombing, you'd remember 9-11. But there was a previous bombing of the World Trade Center by the Muslims. Nobody remembers that because 9-11 completely overshadows it. So what God is saying in the greater exodus is it is going to be of such magnitude that nobody is going to remember the exodus that happened under Moses because it will be insignificant in comparison. But the idea here is the model is the exodus where God when he's getting ready to deal with Egypt, gets his people out of the way, but he doesn't take them out of Egypt. They stay in Egypt. But he's got them up in Goshen, he's got his hand over them, so none of the plagues that hit the Egyptians hit his people. So the idea of, come my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you, hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed, I could very well see that as being a metaphor for Goshen, and certainly the Passover. I understand how people that believe in the rapture see that. We're going to take us out of the way, and God's going to deal with that. And yes, he will take us out of the way, but that doesn't mean he's taking us into the overhead. It simply means he's putting us in Goshen, and I believe it's the job of the 144,000 to go to the 72 biblical nations as a thousand pairs, since he sends them out two by two, And their job is to get his people into their chambers, into some local equivalent of Goshen, so that when the wrath falls, his people are protected. Verse 27, For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity, and the earth will disclose the blood shed on it, and will no more cover its slain. This goes clear back to Genesis Remember when Cain rises up and slays his brother Abel? What does God say? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the earth. So what he's saying here is in that time, the earth will no longer hide the blood that has been shed upon it. Just like Abel's blood cries out to God from the earth. 